0: And God's church does not grow simply by addition, it grows by nutrition. Because when the people of God are fed, healthy sheep will eventually reproduce. And it's very tragic in our day to see so many pastors who waste their time and the church's time doing all the wrong things such that when they stand up on the Lord's day, they have very little to say.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled End Times Apostasy. Today, Pastor Carl will focus on the Church's confession in the midst of apostasy as he reminds us that if we really believe as the Bible teaches that the congregation is the church of the living God, it ought to change our conduct especially in the days of apostasy where people are abandoning the faith. Please join us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue.
0: I hope you are a member of a church family. We often say to people, do you have a church family? That's good theology because that's really what the local assembly is. It is a family. And again, he's assuming that people have made that kind of commitment. But since the church is not a building but a family, it is a living organism. And like with any living organism, it needs to be fed. And so a shepherd's responsibility is to feed the flock. And it's not by accident that God uses food terms to describe his word, milk, meat, honey, bread. And so the church cannot grow from being fed. And God's church does not grow simply by addition, it grows by nutrition, because when the people of God are fed, healthy sheep will eventually reproduce. And it's very tragic in our day to see so many pastors who waste their time and the church's time doing all the wrong things, such that when they stand up on the Lord's day, they have very little to say. And that's why I come prepared to preach this book every week because I'm not here to reveal my mind. I'm here to reveal God's mind. I've come to preach the word, and I hope you've come to listen to the word, and I hope you're listening and won't stop before I'm done preaching, all right? So first, the church is the family of God. Secondly, the church is the assembly of God. The church is the assembly of God, I write That you might know how to conduct himself in the church of the living God. The word church is the word ecclesia, and it's a word that refers to an assembly of people, and it's used in different ways and in different contexts. Stephen uses it, in Acts seven to describe the children of Israel. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament, but he is just describing that there was an assembly of people in the wilderness. Acts seven thirty-eight. It's the word ecclesia. The same word is used in Acts nineteen, of an unbelieving mob that hate the apostles so much they want to kill him. They're called the church. It's an assembly, in that case of people who hate the Apostle Paul and what he stands for. Very often the word ecclesia is used to describe the whole body of Christ, but most often, nearly a hundred times in the New Testament, it is used to describe the local assembly, the local assembly of God's people. And so the phrase the living God is an expression that's in direct contrast to the paganism of the first century, where people had idols that they displayed like something in a museum. And yet God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so the one true living God lives in a community. We just sang a few minutes ago, and the singing was magnificent this morning. And the Scripture says God inhabits the praises of his people. You can't get that when you're at home. Some of you are home because you're lazy and you have stopped obeying God and assembling on the first day of the week. And you need to come back. And if you're listening in some other state and you're not active in a local assembly, you need to be. I'm not talking about those dear mothers who are home today with sick children. I'm talking about people who can't be, who, who, who aren't here but should be here. And there's a, a community of life that happens that will revolutionize your life. And so if we realize that God is in our midst, when we come to worship it will produce certainly a certain reverence and a zeal. If we realize that God is in our midst and our fellowship for one another should be more caring, more Christ centered. If we recognize that God is in our midst, again I will walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people then we will with boldness be a more vocal witness to an unbelieving world if we really believe as the Bible teaches that the congregation is the church of the living God. It ought to change our conduct, especially in these days of apostasy where people are abandoning the faith. So the pastoral epistles are really the manuals on how to do church. And what is so pathetic is is so many so-called church growth books that have come out that have very little to do with how to start, how to build, how to increase a local church God's way. Listen, God gave us three books. They're called First and Second Timothy and Titus, and they're basically ma- manuals on how God wants us to do church. And sadly, there are many a pastor who are using worldly techniques. We speak of the judgment seat of Christ. When every man's work will be tested, be it gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Contextually, though you can broaden it in application to all Christians, contextually, he's dealing with pastors. He's warning pastors, be careful how you build God's church. You will either build it with worldly wisdom or you will build it with the Word of God. And if you build it on worldly wisdom, then at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. And so we are to conduct ourselves properly in these days of apostasy. And so we need to know, one, the church is the family of God, and also that the church is the assembly of God, but also the church is the pillar in support of the truth. It's the pillar in support of the truth. Look again at verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And here it is, the pillar in support of the truth. So we need to ask, in what sense is the assembly of born-again Christians the pillar in support of the truth? The King James renders it the pillar and ground of the truth. The ESV puts it, the pillar in buttress of the truth. The CSB renders it, the pillar in foundation of the truth. So God is giving an architectural image, which would mean much to Timothy. Why? Because he's pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. And there, one of the great wonders of the world, called the Temple of Diana is there. And off of this magnificent marble slab are 127 pillars. And so what is the purpose of a pillar and a support or a pillar or in a buttress as underscored in different translations? Well, let's think for just a moment about this word support or ground or buttress or foundation. It's a Greek word that means to make stable. And it refers to that part of the building that supported the superstructure. It can be used to refer to the part of the building that is underground, or it can be used to describe the Roman buttresses in the first century. They carried all the way into the Middle Ages, of those marvelous Gothic cathedrals uh, that helped keep a building secure. And so while the local church is built on Jesus, he is the foundation He is the way, the truth, and the life. The church also itself is described as the pillar and foundation of the truth. As a buttress, as a support, the local church is to protect the truth. We are to make sure that the truth is not brushed away, that it doesn't fall down. In fact, Isaiah uses the opposite imagery in Isaiah the 59th chapter where he says truth is is fallen in the street, and morality is not even able to enter. And so we, the church, the people of God, are to support the truth. Why? Because it's absolute. It never, ever, ever changes. It is something you can stand on that you can hold to. But unfortunately, many local churches today They've turned away from the truth because it's not relevant, it's offensive. People will get mad, people will leave, people won't stay. And so on the one hand, the church is the support, the foundation, the mainstay, the ground, the buttress of the truth. But on the other hand, notice it's described as a pillar. And the purpose of a pillar is to hold up the roof and the whole building so that it can be seen. And so while we are the support of the truth, we are to hold up the truth so that the world can see that truth. The church is to hold it up high so that people can see it and hopefully believe it. The pillar aspect of the church's ministry relates primarily to our display of the truth, much like a statue that's put up on a pedestal so people can see it. And so as Paul told the church at Philippi, we must hold forth the word of life. He told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are to be living epistles known and read by all men. So our duty to the truth is not only to stop it from being falsified, but we are to bear witness. We are to spread it. And Paul is giving us Doctrine, what it is that we should know, so that it will in turn influence how we are to behave. And so, our conduct in days of apostasy is predicated on the fact that the church is a family, a living organism, it's the assembly of God, and it is the pillar in support of the truth. This is to be the church's conduct. But he goes on further and he underscores the church's confession the church's confession, Roman numeral two there, in the midst of apostasy. So just what is this truth that we are to hold up so high? What is the truth that we are to keep from being falsified? Well, of course, the whole Bible, what is commonly called the faith. And in this context, Paul gives a little summary of the faith, the articular use of the word faith is not referring to an act of faith, But that body of truth that Jude says was delivered by the apostles once and for all to the body of Christ. And so he gives us a little summary, and he's going to draw a contrast in a minute. That's why I'm going through this. He gives us a little summary of an early creed that was called a common confession that he deemed the mystery of godliness. In essence, he's saying here in verse 16, by unanimous confession, By common agreement, we as true Christians believe these marvelous six lines. Now, many, because of the way it's constructed in the Koine Greek of the New Testament, think that this was actually a hymn that was sung. And either way, whether they sung it or just stated it, it doesn't change the truth. Notice verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the word mystery, it comes from the Greek word musterion, and it's used in the New Testament of something that was once hidden and now has been revealed. And again, if you didn't know a word of Greek, most Greek words you can figure out just by reading. So if you read in Ephesians chapter three, Paul says, great is the mystery, and he describes something that was hidden in the Old Testament, namely that the Jews and Gentiles would be brought together into one people, the living church of God. And so Paul here is describing here something that was hidden It's in kernel form in the Old Testament. It's given by prophecy and type and so forth, but now it is fully revealed in the day in which we live. It is certainly not a complete list of biblical doctrine, but it is an essential list that if someone is a true child of God, they will embrace. Now, notice the first truth that he mentions as a part of this common confession, and it is that Christ was revealed in the flesh. Christ was revealed in the flesh. Now, some later manuscripts for clarification over those who are denying Jesus' deity render the verse, God was revealed in the flesh. But the Greek text simply says, he who was revealed in the flesh. In either case, the Bible affirms that God became a man. And the prologue of John's gospel, he writes, in the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he adds, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the first truth that any genuine church will proclaim is that God was revealed in the flesh. God didn't simply come as a spirit, but he came in human flesh. As the prophet said, a baby will be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. God put on human flesh around his person. He was revealed in the flesh, not only in his virgin birth, in his sinless life, and in his substitutionary death, but also in his glorious resurrection, as Paul will affirm. Secondly, Not only was he revealed in the flesh, we also learned that Christ was vindicated in the Spirit. Christ was vindicated in the Spirit. Was Jesus Christ God in human flesh? Yes, he was. How do we know? Because he was vindicated by the Spirit, a word that means endorsed. The Holy Spirit, in other words, put his stamp of approval on the life and confession of Jesus. Though his own Jewish people, for the most part, rejected him... Nonetheless, he was vindicated in the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, in other words, authenticated that Jesus was and is the second member of the Holy Trinity. And how did the Spirit of God accomplish this? Well, he vindicated Jesus by both the prophecies that he inspired men to write and that Jesus fulfilled when he did, for instance, particular miracles. For instance, the Holy Spirit wrote in the Old Testament that the Messiah would heal the sick that he would raise the dead, that he would give sight to the blind. No one had ever given sight to the blind before. That he would unstop the deaf ears, that he would have dominion over the demonic realm, not to mention lives that he would radically change. On the day of Pentecost, Peter reminds his Jewish brethren of this truth. He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Do you remember that day when Jesus did a triple miracle? He said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said these Pharisees should have understood that the miracles he performed and the demons that he cast out vindicated, authenticated that by the finger of God, as Luke says, by the Spirit of God, God had indeed put his stamp of approval that Jesus is Lord, that he was no ordinary human being, but that he is God in human flesh. Do you remember also, even by the words he spoke on that one occasion, they send the temple police out to arrest Jesus, and they go and they attempt to arrest him, and they're just dumbfounded by the things that he says, and they come back and they say, never, Has a man spoken the way this man speaks? The Spirit of God vindicated that he was God by the prophecies he performed, by the miracles he did, by the sinless life he lived, and by the things that he spoke. And ultimately, he vindicated him by the resurrection. So Paul can say he was declared with power, To be the Son of God. How? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus was endorsed or vindicated that he was God in human flesh. The early church sang that, they confessed it. Notice too that Christ was seen by angels. Jesus was revealed in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, and Christ was seen by angels. Again, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. Angels throughout the life of the Lord Jesus Christ were watching and serving the Son of God. They were there at his birth. As the angel Gabriel first came to predict to Mary in Nazareth, the Spirit of God will overshadow your womb, and the offspring within you will be called the Son of God. Another unnamed angel came to Joseph and said, the pregnancy is not illegitimate. It is by the supernatural conceiving work of the Spirit of God. Then a host of angels came to appear to those shepherds to announce his birth. Christ is also seen by angels during his earthly life. They protected him when he was an infant. And so an angel came to warn Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt, to escape the wrath of Herod the Great. They also ministered to him immediately after the time of the wilderness temptation. Likewise, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his soul shrank back from conceiving the truth that for the first time in all of eternity, he would be separated from an unbroken, holy, perfectly loving relationship. An angel came to strengthen him. And the angels of God, the scripture says, were are ready to defend him. All he had to do was call down an angel, and he could have stopped there in Gethsemane, that great arrest. Jesus is also seen by angels as they announce his resurrection. After they roll away the stone, not to let Jesus out so that people could come in and see he was not there, then two angels specifically announced his resurrection that he is not here because he has risen. Christ is also seen by angels when he's ascended up into heaven. And those two angels said he will come back in the exact same way that you saw him leave. And then in Jude 14, when he comes back, as Matthew 25 underscores, he will come with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. So Jesus was seen by angels in his birth in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and when he returns from heaven. The supernatural appearance of angels was God's way of saying, This is no ordinary person. This is indeed God the Son. The fourth stanza of their confession is Christ was proclaimed among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations. Reading further into verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. See, my angels, notice, proclaimed among the nations. They did it then, We do it today as we go into the entire world in obedience to the risen. Christ, we preach the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go therefore, or more literally, as you go, make disciples of all nations. On another occasion, there on the day he ascends into heaven, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and yes, even to the remotest part of the earth. So the early church, they knew and believed that Christ, Christ is indeed to be proclaimed to the entire world. And I believe our greatest need today in Bible believing churches is first to pray like it really matters and then to go and to preach this good news. And so, while on the one hand, there is the aspect coming here, like in 1 Corinthians 14, and you invite people to come to church, and the assumption in 1 Corinthians 14, there is unbelievers present in the local assembly because they were invited there by believers. So, on the one hand, there's the come and see aspect, but on the other hand, there's the go and tell you are to go and to preach the gospel that's the mission of the early church they sang about it and that is our mission but Jesus because he was preached point E there in your outline Christ was believed on in the world he was believed on in the world verse 16 plainly says that because Jesus was proclaimed among the nations he was believed on in the world that is the result of preaching the gospel when the gospel seed falls on hearts that are prepared. Look, you can call yourself spiritual. You can say I'm a great church member but if you're not going in proclaiming You have created a false sense of spirituality. You may not go with the same passion and ability God has given me as an evangelist, but you nonetheless are to go and to share this good news. You're not to grow weary, Paul will tell the Galatians in preaching the gospel. God promises that his word will not return empty without accomplishing the purposes for which he sent it. It's living seed. So don't lose heart just because someone doesn't respond. And the parable of the sower, he describes four kinds of soils, and only on one kind of soil, good soil, do the people respond. And yet, we have promises like here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul will write to the church at Thessalonica for this reason. We also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Some will respond. Some, you will be planting a seed for the first time. Others, like the church at Thessalonica, they will respond immediately. You accepted it as the word of men. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is able to perform its work in you who believe. So some people you meet, you are planting a seed that someone else will harvest. Other people have been prayed for. People have witnessed to them. And God has been preparing their heart. And you give them the plan of salvation. And in faith, they will bow their head and receive Jesus as Lord. Now, notice this sixth and final stanza. Christ was taken up in glory. He was taken up in glory. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so at the ascension, he left this world to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now the truths in this hymn represent some of the great doctrines of the faith that the church is to be responsible in preaching and teaching as part of our common confession. It represents what we as the church is to hold up as the pillar in support of the truth. The truth that we are to lift high that men might see it and understand it and in response believe it. We're not to tell people just what they want to hear, trying to be relevant. We are to preach what they need to hear because the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. So having discussed the church's conduct, he then unfolded for us the church's confession in the midst of apostasy. Third and finally the church's concern in the midst of apostasy. What is the church's concern to be? Well Paul begins chapter 4 with an immediate and stark contrast. He moves from what he calls in verse 16 the mystery of godliness to what he calls in verse 1 the doctrines of demons. Follow along. But The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So having set up the contrast with the word but, Paul now warns us that the apostates have a different kind of confession. False teachers promote a different message, and in turn, they live, therefore, a different lifestyle. And because the church is the pillar in support of the truth, we need to know about such people so that we're not caught off guard.
1: Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon on The End Times Apostasy. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program GPS-004. If you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net or call us at 843-525-1859 And ask your question to Pastor Carl directly, live on the air. Join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.